This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research, answering life's big questions. From engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artifacts to the technology of the future. Episode 7, Leveling the Playing Field. Hello, I'm Susie. Welcome to the last episode in this series of Made at UCL. We've been speaking to academics from all areas of the university, and I have to say, I've really enjoyed hearing about their many passions, determination and curiosity, and how that impacts our daily lives. For this final episode, we're looking at how UCL research is helping to level out various playing fields. We'll hear how legal experts are helping people to get the support they're entitled to, share thoughts with London's commuters on how advertising can be more representative. And for our first story, we're taking a look at the creation of new technologies which make our world more accessible. My name is Julia Barbareski and I'm a research fellow on disability and assistive technology at the Global Disability Innovation Hub. The UCL Global Disability Innovation Hub, or GDI Hub for short, was born out of the legacy of the 2012 Paralympics. It aims to research and develop all sorts of new and exciting innovations, whether that's technological solutions to accessibility or new cultural ideas that change attitudes towards disability. is actually one of the most pressing global problem of this generation and will get a lot bigger in the next one. At the moment, you have one billion people with disabilities around the world. It's expected to be two billions in 30 years' time. According to the World Health Organization, that's largely due to ageing populations around the world, but it's also due to a rise in chronic health conditions. There are also huge barriers to accessing appropriate healthcare and disability support across the globe. Barriers that can make it harder for disabled people to achieve what they want to achieve. And sometimes barriers are, are physical things, like, you know, a flight of stairs or, or someone that does not understand or, or speak sign language. Um, but a lot of other time barriers are simply stigma or, you know, the wrong perception that people have around things. How do you change those ideas? That actually brings me back to what the hub really is. Um, So the way you break this kind of barriers is you bring people together that normally don't work together. So a lot of what I do as a researcher, but also what we do as, as GDI Hub, is to bring together like assistive technology users and, and people with disabilities and, and government to try to understand the impact that these devices have to you know tech designers or, or clinicians in, in the same room together. And some, sometimes like it, it can be quite challenging because everyone has different opinions, but that's how great ideas and, and great change are made really. Julia's research focuses specifically on making those changes in the area of assistive technology. But what exactly is that? So assistive technology is a very loose term, but it's anything that can help a person that has a disability to achieve whatever goal they have in life and do whatever they want. So it can be anything from things that we readily imagine, like a wheelchair, but also I see that you wear glasses. So your glasses are an assistive technology. 
But a lot of times, so it's our smartphone. So smartphone have accessibility features built into them. Um, you can use them to read aloud text uh, that helps you to communicate or to make a video call if you are deaf and you want to sign. And that's also an assistive technology. I don't think I've thought of my glasses in this way before, but many of us use some sort of assistive technology in our daily lives. But it's not yet accessible to everyone. Only about one maybe two in ten have access to the assistive technology that they need and the majority of these people don't live here or in Europe or in the States where a lot of the research takes place but they live in the global south. You might then think that to provide equal access to these technologies across the globe Europe and the States simply need to export them overseas. But actually the worst mistake that you can do it's to pick a technology that was developed here for people here and, and parachute it somewhere where it doesn't work in the context. A lot of the work that we do at the moment, it's based in Kenya. You know, a wheelchair that works perfectly well here might not be repairable in Kenya because it's made of the wrong material or might not be suited for rough terrains. And more than just making products that aren't globally accessible, US and European-based designers and manufacturers are getting in the way of local innovation in countries where this technology will be used. One of the preconceptions that they have is that low- and middle-income countries don't have potential and they need to be given things from us. They really don't. The level of innovation and, and ingenuity and, and brilliance that I found in Kenya in the last two years. I've rarely seen it everywhere else. But a lot of time they need to be enabled, you know, they need to be able to present this image to the rest of the world and, and show how brilliant they can be. The solution to this isn't necessarily to stop trying to help altogether. Far from it. But it's about changing the approaches that manufacturers take when designing these technologies to make them in a way that has all sorts of needs in mind and that can be adapted locally. So much of Julia's work at the GDI Hub focuses on identifying what those needs are. For example, in a lot of lower and middle-income countries... The way the wheelchair provision system works is that they get a bulk delivery of wheelchairs of different size. And and if you go and you need a wheelchair of your size, but your size is not there, you will need to wait until all these wheelchairs run out and the next shipment will come on. Global development and disability charity Motivation might just have the solution to this. This project is the one of the best projects I've worked with. And uh, since it, it, it involves the person who is the wheelchair user, you, you, you are given the priority to, to customise the wheelchair which you are going to use. They're amazing product designers um, within the last couple of years came up with a different idea, which was what if we could use digital fabrication, 3D printing, to make wheelchairs that are custom made. From the measurements to, to everything you want, to, to the, 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 the appearance of the wheelchair you want. You take measurements of um, a person, you input it in a computer, and it will produce the design of a wheelchair of the appropriate size. What you need to make that wheelchair is it's a series of aluminium tubes and the computer will tell you what measures to cut them and a series of 3D printed joints that you use to combine together. 
and the technicians then build the frame, you'll need some add-ons that can be bought in bulk, like wheels and brakes and that sort of things. And you can provide someone with a wheelchair that's made perfectly for them. Uh, the assessment was lovely, it was the first one. I've used wheelchair for the last 13 years and I've never been through an assessment to get a wheelchair, so it was fun for me. This system allows you to cut waiting time, but also like boost local manufacturing and, and enable people to repair locally rather than, you know, if something breaks, having to buy a completely new wheelchairs or having to wait for replacement part to come from the UK or, or the US. This custom wheelchair product, known as Motivation Innovate, ran a highly successful pilot trial in Kenya during the summer of 2019. And they're currently working on responding to the feedback they received and how to scale up the system so it can be tested further afield. This was supported with funding from the GDI Hub's AT2030 programme. But of course, it's not just about providing financial resources to make these sorts of collaborations possible. The GDI Hub is also hoping to bring together the world's best and brightest innovators through its new flagship teaching programme. The Masters of Science in Disability Design and Innovation is a multidisciplinary programme in collaboration with several London universities. We got this first cohort this year and they're amazing. They come from anything from product design to people that have worked in social development, from some people that have worked on architecture and inclusive design of buildings to people that would have done more degrees like psychology and that are more familiar with uh, sort of qualitative studies. And we need all of them. If you're interested about disability and you're interested in, in trying to do something meaningful and, and innovating and really exciting, I would definitely recommend people to apply, especially if they do have a lived experience of disability. You probably agree that whatever kind of body we live in, we ought to be able not only to live fulfilling lives, but to feel good about ourselves while doing it. That's not always the message we receive from billboards, TV screens and social media accounts as we go about our daily lives. In 2015, one ad in particular caused a great deal of controversy. They're just shown a perfect, perfect body, which mm-hmm. to my eye has been shined and buffed and uh-huh. worked on. This shined and buffed and worked on image was front and centre of Protein World's campaign for their weight loss supplements. The poster shows a very thin model with a bright yellow bikini looking down at the viewer from the billboard. And next to it, there's the question, are you beach body ready? The advert blew up on social media with thousands of people protesting that everybody is beach body ready and that the advert was irresponsible for promoting unhealthy body images. It's saying that you need to get your body into shape because what are people going to think of you when you go to the beach and you have like you don't have like a six pack or a, like a really skinny tummy? It would it just makes you feel really bad because like so many of us don't have that body. So I'm not going to like wear a bikini and I'm not going to go to the beach because I don't feel and that's like to the extent that it takes me. It's actually like it will prevent me from going to a beach in my bikini. 
Despite hundreds of complaints, the Advertising Standards Authority chose not to ban the ad. But Sadiq Khan, at the time London's newly elected mayor, decided to take matters into his own hands. He banned the ad from the London Underground, saying, As the father of two teenage girls, I'm extremely concerned about this kind of advertising, which can demean people, particularly women, and make them ashamed of their bodies. It is high time it came to an end. He was especially concerned to improve the standards of advertising on the tube, as this is something that commuters can't simply switch off from, like they would if they saw something they didn't like on TV or in a magazine. But they needed to know more about how women feel when seeing these ads on their travels around the city. And that's where UCL came in. I'm Jessica Ringrose. I'm a professor of sociology of gender and education at the UCL Institute of Education. And I particularly look at youth digital sexual cultures. In 2018, the mayor's office got in touch with Jessica with an idea for a research project. They said, we want to uh, interview women on the streets of London as they go back and forth, um, you know, on their journeys on Transport for London and see what is their actual real-life live experience of advertisements. As well as conducting a survey of over 2,000 men and women, Jessica's team accompanied 16 women from diverse backgrounds aged 21 to 65 as they went about their journeys on the Tube. Whether that was a retiree going to the library or a party-goer getting on the night train after clubs closed. As they travelled, they discussed the adverts they saw on their journey. Like this. Offensive racist. Brave. Powered. Great. I don't like it. I think, why? What's the point of it? <laughs> Alongside this, they asked participants about campaigns that had attempted in some way to improve the tone of their advertising. Um. These are two adverts that have been thought to be, um, they've been regarded as empowering for women. Uh, do you think that this is empowering? I think it's, they're trying to say, look, all body shapes, it doesn't matter whether you're big, small, thin, fat, tall, brown, white, whatever, it doesn't really matter, we're all women, we're all empowered and we all want nice skin. It looks more real and fresh, you know, they're not plastered with makeup. The women are bigger, they're all different shapes, they're all different colours, they're all different. They're looking at a Dove advert featuring several women in bright white underwear, all different shapes and skin tones. And for the most part, people felt that this more diverse advert was more realistic. But not everyone agreed on this one. These kind of ones, I just don't, do we always have to be in our underwear? It's mm. just nonsense. I'm sick of seeing underdressed women. Yes. Uh, we don't walk around like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, for me, an empowering advert would just be an ordinary looking woman dressed in ordinary clothes, not inviting anyone to come and do stuff to her. This underdressing of women was something that many participants raised, questioning why women are often almost naked when advertising anything from furniture to hair products. But they were somewhat divided on the message this sends, with some... Accepting that glamorous women should be profiled in, in highly sexualized ways in, in the adverts. So there were some people that were just like, they're getting paid, they're making a living, um, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm not a prude. It's not exactly news that adverts are often designed to create false ideals, which make us feel bad about ourselves, so that we buy products promising to make us feel better. 
We've all heard that sex sells, but does that make it acceptable to have these images filling up London billboards? The UCL survey showed that the sexualization of both women and men was the number one reason people were likely to find an advert unacceptable, or at the least, inaccurate. The survey also found that many people saw the fact that women are more often shown in states of undress than men as sexist. Some of the people Jessica spoke to were especially concerned about their children being exposed to these sorts of sexualized images. So the UCL team expanded their research to understand how adverts are being experienced by teenagers, who certainly had their fair share of opinions about being beach body ready. It's basically a way of saying, like, you should, if you, if you want to go to the beach and you want to show off your body, you should look like that. Not everyone. It's not right. It's really stupid, you know, like, or, or yeah, because, you know, like, or, no one's explicitly saying to go to the beach, you, look, you have to look like this, you know, if, like, you're, because you're looking at those people, like, you know, that's normal, I should, I should be like that, that's a new thing that I should do. We've been brainwashed to think, we need to be like this in order to be accepted because... Like the boys are like, oh, I want to go with this type of body, blah, blah, blah. And because we're young and naive, we don't really understand it, that we're kind of like, we're losing the love we have for ourselves just to be accepted by people that really don't love us. But away from billboards and public spaces... Targeted advertising on their phones and on social media was a huge issue for um, the teen girls. If you ever feel like your phone is listening to you, that's probably targeted advertising. It uses demographic information to figure out which people are most likely to buy a product. It means companies don't waste money on advertising to people who aren't interested. It's often combined with the use of social media stars and celebrity influencers to advertise products to young girls. They were talking about um uh, the Kardashians marketing these gummy bear hair vitamins. So it's like, it's like basically like candy, but it's marketed as a vitamin and it's supposed to make your hair nice. Sugar bear hair, what's that? Mm-hmm. Um, gummy. Yeah. So it's like a gummy. It's like a gummy that the Kardashians have and then they like chew it and then apparently it gives you amazing hair. Like on their, on their bio it says, get healthy hair, eat the blue bear. As an older person, I really felt for how uh, pressurized they felt. Well, celebrities eat these gummy bears yeah. Yeah. that are good for your hair. But they get paid for it, though. Like, they're paid to do yeah. it. I'm not going to lie yet, I thought it was real. I was telling my mum about that. She was like, oh, is it? <laughs> what? I thought yeah, they were real. Sh- the sugar bear hair. Yeah. 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 You thought they were real? Yeah, I thought it actually worked. I thought my mum bought it. Okay. If you go on Instagram, literally, if you go on your explore page, you'll mm-hmm. see it at least once. And it's being advertised a lot, and you'll come to a point where you actually believe it. When it's so much advertisement, you're just like, why not? And then you kind of, when you don't look like that, it, it just gives you this sense of like, what's wrong with me type of thing. Well, it sort of wears you down. Like, once you see it like over and over again, I was actually thinking of buying those like little gummy bear things because they look nice and stuff. And um, yeah, it's like, it, is, it, is, it isn't real, it, isn't, it is lies, but it just wears you down so often. These teenagers are a lot more aware of how advertising influences them than I was at their age. But that just goes to show what a huge impact these campaigns have in today's social media world. That's why it's so important to have good guidelines on what images and suggestions adverts include, and a good understanding of how we respond to them. Jessica's research made suggestions for such guidelines, finding that people generally found adverts more empowering, acceptable and fairer the more diverse they were. This went on to spark a competition run by Transport for London 
to encourage more inclusive advertising. They got a great range of responses, and the winner, Holland and Barrett, included clothe women of all different shapes, ethnicities and body types doing the activities they enjoy, like spending time outdoors, boxing or swimming, to advertise their supplements. It was really incredible as a researcher to be able to see what the creative um, people in the uh, agencies came up with to kind of like tackle the issues that we had highlighted. I think we're in a new era where people actually want to see some kind of inclusion. They want to see diversity. They don't want to see just one type of person. So it was sort of um, a confirmation that another type of advertising is possible. Leveling playing fields in all sectors can be about providing the resources that people need to achieve what they want to achieve. It can also, as we've seen, be about the sorts of messages we impress upon each other. But it's also about supporting each other to fight for what is right. And our final story is about just that. Last year, and fittingly, the day after the UK's general election, I went to visit UCL's Integrated Legal Advice Clinic. Hello, my name's Katrina McDonald. Ben Cartwright. Clara Fug, Rachel Knowles. Tyrell Khan, I'm a housing solicitor. I'm an advisor. At I'm a student assistant. The paralegal. I'm head of legal practice at the UCL Integrated Legal Advice Clinic. The Integrated Legal Advice Clinic is based in Newham, East London. Their lawyers provide free legal advice to local residents on a whole range of issues. Whilst I was there, I not only got to speak to staff and students, but I met with two mothers who'd recently sought help from the clinic. They've asked to remain anonymous, but both had quite similar cases. My son has ASD, he has autism, and his autism is quite severe because he has severe behavioural difficulties as well. He's got severe autism, he's got global, global development delay as well, um, he's got sensory issues as well. He needs one-to-one throughout the whole day to, for himself and to um, keep others safe. I've had to give up my job to just to obviously cater for my child um, because obviously that's priority to um, handle him um, in the evenings especially, to give him that time. Um, as a mother, I think that's what's important. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he has no idea with my, I'm talking about my son, has no idea, like if he's on the road, he'll just run on the road and he doesn't know that someone can hit him and, you know, kill him or if I'm running after him, the same thing can happen to me. There are systems in place that are designed to help out those with disabilities and their carers. You know, little, little things like getting a disabled badge will be a bit a lot easier for me because you can park in the disabled bay, you've got the space around so he can walk around without me, you know, worrying, having to worry, oh, he's going to walk out onto the road. As well as blue badge parking permits, the UK offers welfare entitlements such as a disabled living allowance to support the most vulnerable in our society. And you'd think that the support ought to be easy to access. I've had to appeal and appeal and appeal in the past to get my disabled badge for him. The process of applying for things like benefits payments, getting access to suitable housing or being granted those blue badges has become increasingly complicated, hostile and demoralising. They make you feel like, you know, it's okay, you know, you can just live with it and, you know, it's totally fine, you know, if everyone else is going through it, you know, but it's... It's only for people with physical disability, but they don't know that like people with 
who don't understand things, it's really, really difficult for them. In the benefit system currently, it seems to be the case that um, everything is taken from a starting point with a view of suspicion. So you, you, you ask for something that you're entitled to because of your condition, but you're met with suspicion from the providers. So you have to prove every single thing that you're saying. That's Clara, one of the paralegals at the clinic which gives legal advice and representation in cases where governments and local authorities are failing to provide the support that people are entitled to. You might be wondering why UCL even has a legal clinic. I know I certainly was, as I'd thought universities were primarily focused on research and teaching. Here's Rachel, who heads up the clinic. People who have health problems are often... Those are exacerbated if they have legal problems and there's been a fair amount of research that's been done about that but there's been not very much research done about the fact that if people get help with those legal problems do do their health problems improve? The clinic was originally set up in the hope that maybe we could do some research around that particular issue. That then rapidly increased into a full-blown legal advice clinic because we realised that there's a real dearth of advice services in Newham. For many years now, it's become increasingly difficult, almost impossible even, to get legal advice and representation across the country. There used to be something called Legal Aid, which funded free legal support for those who needed it, but that's been cut dramatically. Before 2013, you could get legal aid for things like welfare benefits advice or advice about all types of disrepair in housing. Um, get increased priority on the housing waiting list. Since 2013, you can't get any legal aid for welfare benefits advice. And at the same time as that cut was made, obviously there have been huge changes to the welfare benefit system, for example, the introduction of universal credit. So lots of people are being left on the breadline or just with no money at all and no one to help them challenge it because there's no legal aid to do it. I think there's a perception that there are many benefits claimants who are applying to receive money without necessarily needing it. But this has led to the most vulnerable people in society not receiving the support that they're entitled to. You think it would be you know, quite obvious if someone is homeless and then obviously local authority has legal duties to accommodate and to assist those who are homeless. You feel we should be, you know, why, why should there be a legal challenge necessary? But unfortunately, on a daily basis, many applicants are turned away. There's a sort of general approach of people just saying no in the first instance, because if you turn people away in the first instance, maybe only 20% of them will come back and ask again. Maybe it'll be 30, we don't know, but then we've at least got rid of the other 70 or 80. It's worth noting that for some benefits, particularly those relating to disability, 75% of cases that make it to appeal are successful. Here's Katrina, who advised one of the mothers I met in appealing for disability living allowance. Sometimes clients feel like they don't know, the system feels inaccessible, even though it's supposed to be designed to be more accessible for people to challenge decisions. And so it's a new space that they've never sort of navigated before, and that can be quite daunting for people. For parents of children with autism they've got their hands full they've got a lot going on day-to-day life is very full and even finding the sort of headspace to think about whether to challenge something or whether it's wrong that takes energy and time and motivation that um, sometimes by the end of the day there isn't enough 
time left for that sort of consideration? I'm actually not the sort of challenging sort of parent. Like, I don't go challenging. I'm kind of like a, I get a bit worried and, you know, anxiety and everything. So I'm not the sort of, I'll say brave. I'm not maybe brave enough to go out there, you know, get myself heard. Last time I went to an appeal, um, they fired questions at me. And, you know, as a mother, you just think, oh, I, you know, this is the positiveness that I want from my child. But you have to remember as well that, you know, these are the difficulties that you're having with your children. You have to sort of present your day-to-day life in the most honest way, but obviously, privately, you, in order to cope with all of those difficulties, tend to focus on the positive side, whereas in an assessment setting or a tribunal hearing, you have to do you have to do the opposite to sort of provide the most honest version of your life, and that can be quite counterintuitive and difficult. I learned that much of the clinic's work is gathering the right evidence and helping with form-filling and going through the right procedures. But it's also about helping to coach clients through these unwieldy and often scary processes. We try to make sure that uh, clients are fully informed and know what to expect and just taking that uncertainty and unknown factor out of the equation. Katrina did explain to me it's going to be a room and there'll be three professionals. Um, But I've never been before. This is going to be my first time. I was nervous, but I do feel confident now. This aid has already led to many successful cases. But many of the appeals should never have had to get to that stage in the first place. There are all sorts of widespread injustices like this that the clinic continues to combat. We are here to sort of put, you know, represent and empower the most vulnerable in, in society. And yeah, well, while there is, uh, you know, while there is poor housing and poor service for clients, um, we obviously will, st- will be here to represent them. Hopefully with as many people as we can fit in here. I'm hoping that we might... Uh, come up with ways to challenge things a bit more systemically rather than just doing things on a case-by-case basis because uh, that hopefully will create more long-term, more significant change. Part of that systemic change also includes working with UCL's law students who are able to take placements at the clinic, which feeds into their education and academic research too. Here's Ben, one of the students I met during my visit, who was just finishing up his placement. So whilst in my role it's mostly um, clerical, I have been interacting with some really interesting cases and speaking to clients over the phone, um, discussing their cases. And whilst lots of the stories are really sad, it is interesting and fascinating to see how we can actually help as lawyers. But I also quite like the the intersection with politics and with policy, um, because whilst it's small legal rules that are at play, ultimately it connects to a much larger larger monolith, I guess, of the state. So the students as well are you know, seeing the world maybe differently through different people's eyes. Coming here, lots of students actually are actually astounded by actually the realities. Being here has helped me get a better understanding of the different types of benefits, how decisions are made, and the actual amounts of money people receive, which is often tiny. You know, £77 or so for a family of five for a week after bills, um, which is not enough to live on. Hopefully people will understand that the benefit system is there to help people and it's just not working. So you can see that the widespread changes we need to level things out and take on that monolith of the state requires legal expertise, but also different attitudes to the benefit system 
and political engagement. Until we have that, the clinic will continue to celebrate its successes on a case-by-case basis, empowering Newham's communities to get what they're entitled to. We went to the appeal and then we sat in the waiting room, all um, hesitant, OK, you know what's going to happen now. And finally, when we went into the room, uh, it was really, really nice because they welcomed us in. We sat down and without me saying anything, they had made come to a decision that he should get high rate mobility for his needs. I've ne- I've, the f- for the first time, I didn't have to fight. You must have been really surprised because you're going in expecting <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I, I was surprised and um, I ended up in tears <laughs> um, because um, I've, ne- I've never been in a place where they understood my child straight away. I used to be really quiet before, never used to say anything. And now, like, you know, I can openly say, okay, you know what, this is my child's condition and this is how it is. A lot of parents that I've spoken to, they're suffering at home with their child um, because they don't know these things, you know, all the support that they can get, all the, the benefits that can, they, can, they can get as well. I have, I have said to them, look, anything you need to you need help with, um, you know, um, definitely go to UCL. They've, they've helped me with my case and, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a really, really good job. Thank you so much for joining me throughout this series. I've really enjoyed the many trips to labs and libraries to uncover just what goes on at the university, and I hope you have too. We've explored rainforests, ducked into forensics labs, gone underground to both coal mines and to jump on the tube, headed off to outer space, and once or twice done a bit of time travelling too. We'd love to hear from you, so tell us about your favourite stories or most surprising fact that you've heard on Facebook or Twitter or iTunes, and don't forget the hashtag MadeAtUCL. We're looking forward to a second season, so stay tuned for updates. In the meantime, I'd like to say a final thank you to all the people we've heard from throughout the series who are striving to answer life's big questions. UCL The Podcast is made by me, Susie McCarthy. The assistant producers on this episode were Rosalind Chaston and Cassidy Martin. The executive producer is Nina Garthwaite. Mixing support from Mike Woolley. We'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices. Hashtag Made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disruptive thinking from UCL. Research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impact it's made on everyday life and society. This episode is brought to you from UCL Minds. Events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone.